This morning I want to share with you the plan of the will in God's plan of salvation. And we have a text, Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, you all know that the husband's mind cannot be transplanted into the wife's mind, and vice versa. What this really means is that the Christian is to give the control of the mind to Christ. Just as Jesus gave the full control of his mind <clears throat> to his Father. Now to begin our study, let us examine a scripture in Revelations 22 and verse 17. You're familiar with this. <clears throat> the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You will notice three different divisions. First, God. He's calling for individuals to come. It says, the Spirit says, come. And then it says, we, the family of God, should give an invitation. It says, let him that heareth say, come. Sometimes we don't seem to realize that we who have found the Lord have an obligation to seek the lost. And then thirdly, it speaks to those who are without salvation. Let him that is athirst come. You know, in my ministry I have often been asked to go and visit a certain individual to talk with them about their Christian experience and how to find the Lord. And I usually ask the question, do they have a desire for a better life? For I have found that it's almost hopeless to talk with anybody unless they have a desire and feel a need. And this is why the scripture says, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You see, no one can do the willing for another individual. Not even God himself. Therefore, my message today is of utmost importance, for we can know the part that our will must act if we are to attain salvation. So let's begin, and as I do, perhaps you will wonder if this sermon today really deals with the coming of Christ and getting ready for him. But before I am finished, you will find that it is the most important sermon I have given yet. Let's begin when we are born, at our birth. We come into this world with three instincts of life. Hunger, self-preservation, and we come with sex. Why? For the blessing of the individual for the blessing of the family, and for the blessing of the nation. These instincts are God-implanted within us. They are not taught. You see, a child will cry, it will suckle, it will imitate. 
because God implanted these instincts within the child. But we are also born with some hereditary traits. For instance, the texture of our skin, the color of our eyes, the nature of our temperament, and our mental aptitudes. These all come from our parents. But this morning, I want to talk to you about the character. Where does the character come from? It does not come from instinct. It is not by heredity. The character is not transmitted. For instance, if your parents were dishonest, if your parents were dishonest, undependable, even alcoholics, these traits will influence you, but they can all be overcome by the power of God. But the character, the character has to do with the will. The will is the determining factor in life in the plan of salvation. And if we know how the will operates, then we will know how to control the will. And I want to repeat this morning, the will is the determining factor between heaven and hell. I would like to describe the will by beginning in a description of what the will is not. Let me illustrate, and I'm sure that all of you will recognize immediately, for you have experienced this in your life. You're in a home, and there's a little one, and of course the little ones need to go to bed early. And so the time comes for bedtime, and mother looks at Johnny, and she says, Johnny, it's time for you to go to bed. And immediately, the child shakes his head, no, no and he starts to pout. But mother is insistent. She says, Johnny, be a good boy. It's time for you to go to bed. And then he begins to stamp his feet, and he continues to play in disobedience with his toys. Finally, mother goes from her chair and takes him by the hand and leads him to the bedroom. And he yells, and he kicks, and he screams. And mother blushes, and she turns to the company and says, my boy has such a strong willpower. That's a misnomer. That boy didn't have any willpower at all. That boy had won't power. And won't power is not to be construed with willpower. Let me explain further that won't power is not the willpower, and neither is want power the willpower. Now follow me closely. Let me illustrate again. I had a missionary tell me of an old man that came to the dispensary for help. He had a terrible toothache. His jaw was swollen, so much so that he could hardly look out of his eye and he had terrible pain, and he was filled with fever, and he came to the doctor, and the doctor took one look at the tooth, and he knew that it had to come out. 
It was ulcerated. His whole jaw was swollen. And so he said, now sit down. He says, I'll take care of this for you. Now remember, this man in the jungle had never come to a doctor before. And so the doctor seated him in a chair and he began to put on his little white jacket. And there was a table right by the chair and the doctor brought out a hypo with a long needle. And the fellow's eyes got big. He'd never seen anything like that before. And then the doctor brought out a lance, a little, a little knife, in case he needed it. And then he brought out those horrible forceps that he would grab the tooth with. And the doctor said, now open your mouth. And he said, oh, no, no. And he clamped his jaw just as tight as he could. The doctor said, look, just let me stick that gum with this little needle. I'll just prick it. Just, and then you won't feel anything at all. And I'll take that tooth out and you can go home and you won't have any more pain. Oh, no, no. He wouldn't do it. He got up out of that chair and he rushed to the door and he went back in the jungle. Why? Because he was not willing. Oh, he wanted the pain to go. You see, willpower is not want power, neither is it won't power. The best definition that I have ever read, and I am again going to encourage our young people here, and I encourage you older folks, read that book, Messages to Young People. It has a clarity, a simplicity that is beyond description. Let me read to you 151. Pure religion. I like that. Pure religion has to do with the will. So I'm right on the spot at the will is the governing power in the nature of man, bringing all other faculties under its sway. The will is not the taste nor the inclination, but it is the deciding power which works in the children of men unto obedience to God or unto disobedience. So I'm talking about a very important subject. I'm not talking about want power. I'm not talking about want power. I'm talking about the deciding power in the individual. And this is the will. Now that word deciding implies that there is a council of judges that is involved. And I want you to consider your head this morning where your mind is that inside this chamber there are three judges sitting around a table discussing your problem and making a decision. Can you see these three? Now the first judge, I want to talk about him. He's called the voice of reason. Remember Jesus said, Isaiah 1.18, come now. Let us reason together. Only man has the power of reason. In all of the animal kingdom, you will not find any reasoning power. You see, choice is what God gave as a precious gift. The most precious gift that he gave to us aside from Jesus Christ. And he expects you and me to use the power of choice. 
That's why I read in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to recall this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. God wants us to use the power of the will. And one of those parts of the will has to do with the reasoning ability. What about this reasoning? It's cold. It's factual. It argues the pro or the con. It points out the good. It shows you the bad. And it pays no attention as to whether you like it or not. It coldly points out the advantages and the disadvantages. Now, what makes reason, this judge in our minds, what makes it tick? I'll tell you, there's four things. One of them is your home life. In your home, do you study the Bible? In your home, are you praying? In your home, is the television on practically 24 hours of the day? in which you are drinking in all the movies and all of that which is portrayed as evil? And are you listening to music with the beat of Satan? These things affect your reasoning. And another thing, the school you attend or that you did attend. This is very, very important. You see, that's why Seventh-day Adventists have spent millions, and I would dare say in the billion, on Christian education. Because it's very important when the child has a problem, does the teacher point him to the Word of God? And when the child gets in trouble, as all children do, does the teacher pray with that individual? It's very important the school that we go to. Does the teacher teach evolution and the things of evil, or does it teach the Word of God? This has a bearing on your reasoning ability. And then thirdly, the church you attend. That's very important. Is the church that you attend based on the thus saith the word? Does the preacher read the Bible and teach from it? Or is he teaching traditions? This all affects your reasoning. Does the church you attend sort of re rely on the excitement of drama to sort of stir your emotions? And what kind of music do you hear when you go to church? Do you have the beat of the drum from Africa? These things affect your reasoning ability. What is the kind of a church you are going to? Is the preacher always using humanistic psychology to be the rule in your life? Now think it through. And then your reasoning has to do with your associates. And let me tell you, the power of associates is almost above everything else. 
I have seen young people who made a start for the kingdom, but the power of the associates pulled them down into the gutter. Are your associates Christians? I have seen people who have been struggling with tobacco, and still they gather their old friends who smoke. Instead of getting new friends and turning away from those who have evil habits, and then they wonder why they can't overcome the habit of tobacco. The power of the associates, the language they use, the stories they tell. I want to tell you, people who want to get ready for the kingdom will be associating with others who are of like hope. Now, each of these influences affect the reasoning ability of the judge called your reason. Let's look at the second judge. There he sits in the chamber up here, and that's called the heart's ideal, or the feelings. And there's a big difference between the mind of knowledge, which I've just talked about, and the heart of your feelings. You see, the mind is the seat of knowledge, but the heart is the seat of the feelings. And this is why I read in 1 Kings 3, 9, Oh, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart. You see, your ideal is developed by the home life. Your ideal is developed by the school life, by the church life, and by your associates. Is your ideal fixed on Jesus Christ? Everything that you're listening to, everything that you're reading, everything that you're doing, does Jesus become the ideal? You know, the poet said, Be like Jesus, this my song. In the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. What is your ideal? To be like some movie actor that you're watching all the time on TV? Or the loving Jesus who wants to give you victory and get you ready for heaven? And then there's a third judge. He sits right next to reason and then the ideal and the third one is the voice of your conscience. Again, the ability of this judge is developed by your home life, by your school life, by the church you attend, and by your associates. We are not born with a conscience, and neither must we consider our conscience to be infallible. Uh-oh, you say, now wait a minute. Listen to me. Take this man, Saul of Tarshish. Look at his home life, his school life, his church and his associates. They all played a part in the development of his conscience. He was taught by tradition rather than the word of God. And furthermore, he was taught that higher education was above God's counsel. And furthermore, he was taught that the priest, who was the pastor then, was to be followed with a cadaver conscience. 
Don't think anything about it. Don't ask any questions. If the priest says so, do it. And because of this, his conscience told him to persecute the people of God. It told him to fight the truth of God. But on the road to Damascus, something happened. Jesus appeared to him. And when he looked into that face, when he saw his ideal as he had never seen him before, he saw the folly of fighting truth. His conscience was open and it was renewed by the Holy Spirit. He immediately left his followers, his associates, never to associate with them anymore. He got a whole new group to pray with him and to visit with him and to help him. No longer was he Saul the persecutor. He was now Paul, the evangelist, ready to die for what he once fought. Now he acted completely the opposite from the past. And this is a lesson for us. Paul's three judges in his mind chamber now acted differently his reasoning power was based on the scriptures. And his heart's ideal was Jesus Christ. He wanted to be like him. And his conscience was open to the speaking of the divine power of the third person of the Godhead. And his associates were believers. Oh, you may call this being born again but it involves the three judges in your chamber of your mind. But let me tell you something. Don't overlook this alarming fact. You may have a high reasoning ability, but if you have a low ideal like water, your mind will seek the lower level. And you may have a good conscience, but it will be unstable if that conscience doesn't have good reasoning ability to base itself. And again, your three judges can be completely overruled by your associates. Sometimes it takes a little time, sometimes only instantly. But if there is a problem that requires a little time, there must be what we call a porter right at the opening of the skull. And we call him self-control. And this self-control, when a problem comes, self-control says, wait just a minute. Let's give the three judges time to act. And this is what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 9.25, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Ellen White puts it in these words, Message to Young People 134, The highest evidence of nobility is a Christian is self-control. He who can stand unmoved amid the storm of abuse is one of God's heroes. It is God's purpose that the kingly power of sanctified reason 
controlled by divine grace, will bear sway in the lives of human beings. For he who rules his spirit is in possession of this power. And so at the doorway of this council chamber of the will sits this little fellow called self-control. And as the tendencies follow the nerve impulses, whether they be from your habits, whether they be your hereditary tendencies, whether they be from emotions, they come up and the will is to act, but self-control says to the three judges, give them time to act. But if you act impulsively without the three judges, you will have a disaster. The difference can be life or death, the difference between heaven or hell. Let me make it practical. Let's take a look at self-indulgence. Without the willpower, it's a disaster. It's like a mob. You know, a mob never reasons, a mob never thinks. Someone says, throw the rock, break the window, and they crash the windows. Someone yells, kill him, and the mob will kill. They don't think. And so with we, if we don't take time for the will chamber to have an action, we also, we find that we follow the guidance of the flesh and we come with regret, disappointment, remorse, and death if we bypass the will chamber. On the other hand, if we let self-control take over with reasoning speaking, with our ideals, and with our conscience, suddenly we make the right decision. Now I want to make this real clear to you today. Let's take the example of hunger. It's a God-given desire that was implanted within us at birth. As it arises in our organs, it follows the nerve pathway to the will chamber. If it's unhampered by reason, by ideal, or by conscience, the result will be we will eat anything at any time in any quantity to satisfy the impulse, and we can become a glutton and a drunkard. But suppose we channel this desire of hunger to the will chamber, and immediately self-control takes and puts us into the will chamber. And it says, wait a minute, let the three judges act. Instantly reason speaks up and says, remember, the amount you eat today has to do with the kind of work you were doing. And it says, uh, don't forget, you must eat some protein, some carbohydrates, and some minerals. And you need four or five hours between meals. And then it adds, and you must eat some greens. Oh, you don't like greens? That doesn't make any difference. Reason says you need it. And then conscience speaks right up. Everything that can be eaten shouldn't be eaten. Some things are poison like alcohol. And didn't God say 
that some things were unclean and should never enter our mouths. And so the will makes a decision. I will eat the right food in the right quantity at the right time. And the result, a happy, healthy, clear-minded thinker on the road to eternity. What about sex? Remember, there are two paths that can be taken, controlled or uncontrolled. God gave us sex. There is nothing wrong with sex. Let's consider it uncontrolled. This will lead you into an indiscriminate petting, licentiousness, adultery, perversion, and even incest. This will turn true love to lust. It breaks homes. It ruins lives. Uncontrolled sex is a curse and is promoted today as never before by Satan. It's everywhere. But now consider sex as controlled by the will. Maybe you won't agree with me at first, but you think it over and you will. Sex is largely responsible for the following arts, music, literature, painting, sculpture, nursing, true love, welfare work, and even foreign mission work. Now that may sound a little bit impossible, but it's absolutely true. You see, you take this beautiful young woman and she can become an unselfish mother raising and rearing her beautiful children in a Christian home. Or that same woman can become a harlot, walking the streets like a dog in heat. What makes the difference? It's the will. Both of these desires are inspired by the same instinctive urge called sex. The will is the deciding power. No wonder the wisest man that ever lived read, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And Paul added in Romans 8.13, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The fact remains, the will is the determining factor in your life between heaven and hell. Message to young people, 31. Oh, that everyone might realize that he is the arbiter of his destiny. Your happiness for this life and for the future immortal life lies within yourself. Oh, you say, doesn't God have something to do? Of course he does. What it means and what I'm trying to say is that you must first do the willing and then God can do the saving. Let me read more. Page 212. Remember, each day, each hour, each moment, 
You are weaving the web of your destiny. Each time the shuttle is thrown, there is woven into the web a thread which either mars or benefits the pattern. If you are careless and indifferent, indolent, you spoil the life which God designed should be bright and beautiful. If you choose to follow your own inclinations, unchristlike habits will bind you with bands of steel. Again, what is it? What is the deciding factor? It is the will. And now, in conclusion, I want to bring you one of the most profound truths that you will ever hear. Message to Young People 101. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Now, wait a minute. Omnipotent? Why, omnipotence is something that belongs only to God. You mean God is going to share that power with me? That's what he did with Jesus. He was human, just like you and me, in this life to overcome. And what did he do? He gave his will completely to his Father in heaven, and his will became omnipotent over every temptation. Think it through. And this is what he meant when he said, not my will, but thy will. Oh, brothers and sisters, God wants to do the same for you and for me. Christ says, give me your will. Cooperate. Let me have control of your will. And you can become omnipotent over every temptation. Praise God. I want to tell you, I'm bringing you this morning a message of hope. I'm bringing you a message of courage. You can go out here this week and overcome every temptation if you will place your will, your reasoning, your ideal. If you will place those and your conscience under the control of the Almighty God, you can have victory. Oh, brothers and sisters, we ought to go without, with courage out of here this morning. To think what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why it says in Isaiah 1.20, If ye be willing and obedient. You know, we, we always think of the obedience. Uh, brothers and sisters, all it takes is the willing. And God does the other for us. We should be the happiest Christians. We should be going around with a song in our heart. Joy in our heart that God has made it possible for you and me to live with him in heaven. Overcoming sin just as he did. Messages to young people again. Put your will on the side of Christ. Will to serve him. And acting upon his word you will receive strength. Whatever may be the evil practice the master passion which, though long indulgence, binds both soul and body,
Christ is able and longs to deliver. I don't care what the sin is in your life. I don't care how deep you have gone into sin. Even if you're a homosexual or a lesbian or whatever it is. Brothers and sisters, there's power when you give Jesus Christ your will. You can have victory. I like this kind of a savior. And that's why I say Jesus is coming soon. This week I have never been so convicted as I have been reading and hearing and seeing what is happening today. Things are moving fastly. I believe Jesus is coming soon. But the question is, is our will in the hands of God? Are we gaining the victories? And so my message today is I bring you life or I bring you death. How do you accept this teaching of the will? Let me make that clear. I was talking to a missionary once. He told me of an old man that walked into his mission hospital. As he came in, there was something that stunk about him, a peculiar smell. He had a rag wrapped around his finger, dirty old rag. And he said, please, doctor, give me some medicine to heal my finger. Well, of course, the doctor always looks to see what is needed. And so he unwrapped that dirty, filthy, stinking finger. And he was horrified. The finger was dead. It was rotten to the bone. Oh, the doctor said, there isn't any medicine I can give you. It has to be amputated immediately if I'm to save your life because that blood poisoning is going to go up your hand, it's going to go up your arm, through your shoulder, when it touches your heart, that's it. You'll die. No, the man said, don't take my finger off, just give me some medicine. Well, the doctor pled with him. He said, you're not going to live five days. Now he says, I'll go to the witch doctor. If he can't help me, I'll come back. The doctor stood there and watched that man walk out that door into the jungle. Ten days later, someone came for help from the very part of the jungle where this man lived. And the doctor said, what about that fellow with that broken finger? Oh, he said he died five days ago. Did he have to die? Was there no physician? Was there no bomb in Gilead? Oh, the problem was he was not willing. And if you miss eternal life, it's not going to be because of your sins. It's going to be because you were not willing for Jesus to save you from your sins. I beg of you today, let your reasoning power be developed by earnest faithful study of the Word of God every day. Let your ideal be Jesus Christ, not some movie actor so that you want to dress like him, you want to act like him, you want to sing like him. Let your conscience be that still small voice of the Holy Spirit saying this is the way. Then your will will be in tune with God's will. If you want eternal life, 
you must control the will. One paragraph. You cannot control your impulses, your emotions, as you may desire, but you can control the will. And you can make an entire change in your life. By yielding up your will to Christ, your life will be hid with Christ in God and allied to a power which is above all principalities and powers. What's that? It's omnipotence. Your will can have the power of omnipotence just as Jesus Christ had it. You too can become omnipotent over every temptation this coming week. That's why our text, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I can't give a sermon like this without asking for a decision. How many of you will join me as I stand before you down here, and I want you to stand where you are and say, God helping me this week, I want to so take my will to God that it will be in his hands that I can be victorious this week. Will you do that with me? Will you stand? Heavenly Father, we're standing before thee this morning. Lord, this is a crucial part of salvation. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to each day take these wills and place them in thy hand that we may be victorious in having power over every temptation this week. May it be a glorious week. May we go from here with new hope and new courage and new strength and a joy in the Lord of knowing that the mind of Christ is like our minds. They are in your hand. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.